Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and not joining me today, my friend, my colleague, my neighbor, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly. And that can mean only one thing. Yes, you guessed it. This is a continuation of our interview series. Now, today's guest is Megan Schuster, and Megan Schuster is a massive contributor over at the Ringer Network. And for those of you that don't know, and Megan's going to get into this a little bit later on, the Ringer is a huge content creator and a huge producer of new original content in the realm of sports, everything from golf, the NHL, Major League Baseball, basketball, college sports, but also intriguingly for people like me, also pop culture, music, TVs, and movies. And they do a really cool job of intertwining all of this in a really fun, palatable, accessible way. Megan has had a major hand in contributing on the golf side, but she's also written about the NHL. She's done a lot of pop culture work, but increasingly over the last year, she's done more and more work in the Formula One side of the business. Now, earlier this year, and we'll get to this as well, The Ringer launched their first full-time dedicated F1 podcast called The Ringer F1 Show. And of course, that is headed by Kevin Clark, but Megan has been a constant, consistent, reoccurring presence and guest on that show to help drive forward the narratives, the storylines of the F1 season. Of course, earlier this year, back at the beginning of August, I had the opportunity to join Megan and Tim Haraney on an episode where we recapped the Hungarian Grand Prix. Now, we've been working on getting Megan on the show for a while. And like I said, I'm a big fan of the network and I'm a big fan of Megan. So this is a special moment and a special episode for me. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to be joined by Megan and we're going to talk about everything, including her sports fandom growing up in the great state of Minnesota, how she entered the world of sports journalism and sports media, and of course, how she fell in love with Formula One. Hope you guys all enjoy this fantastic interview. We're going to take a quick break, pay some of those proverbial bills, but we'll be back on the flip side. See you then. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. As I said before the break, I'm not joined today by Mark Daly, and that is because this is a continuation of our interview series, and I am incredibly excited as I teased before the break and as I've teased for many weeks to be joined now by Megan Schuster. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. You know, we're sitting here. We're back into the swing of things. The Formula One summer break is over, so all of those great storylines that you and I I've been talking about all year, Red Bull, the Ferrari disaster, Mercedes, incremental improvements, those storylines are back. But before we get into F1, and we definitely want to talk about that a little bit today, how would you introduce yourself and what would you want our listeners to know about you? Ooh, that's a great question. I would first and foremost say that I am a proud Minnesotan, <laughs> born and raised there. I've, I've moved away for you know, 10 years kind of in the middle of my life, but uh, I'm back living there, which has been great. I am a sports fanatic. I am an avid reader. I love a, a good binge watch. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's how I would introduce myself. <laughs> I, I love that that comment about being 
proud of being a Minnesotan. Everyone that I know that is from or live in Minnesota are, are passionate about <laughs> the place they're from. They're, they're passionate about sports in a really meaningful way too. And it's always felt that disproportionately, there are a huge number of sports teams in that state, in the Twin Cities, whether it's whether it's the Wild, the Twins, uh, the Timberwolves, etc. And I remember back in the early 90s when the North Stars left, just being so mm. brokenhearted for the people of that state because hockey is a huge sport in the state of Minnesota, right? It is. I actually, like our state, official state sport is hockey and our nickname is the state of hockey. So for us to have not had an NHL team for time was unthinkable truly and like it, it's like a you know texas not having football or something it, it's just truly baffling so having the wild back has been really really great i think they have a a very strong sellout record like maybe one of the better sellout wow. records in in you know the national hockey league so very grateful for that. When you were growing up in Minnesota, which teams or which sports did you tend to gravitate towards? Because obviously the Vikings are, are huge. They're the bedrock of society. You had probably been a little bit too young, but of course the Twins won the World Series in 87, 91. Mm-hmm. They, the Timberwolves joined the NBA in the late 80s, early 90s. And of course the North Stars were there. They left, but they were replaced by the expansion wild. Was there any specific teams that you gravitated towards or any sports that you were really passionate about while growing up? Yeah, so I'm a bit of a con- controversial Minnesota sports fan in that generally across the board, I am rooting for Minnesota teams. The Timberwolves, I actually worked for them um, for a summer in college and the Lynx, Wilds, I love, you know, anything Minnesota Gophers is great. Twins are always fun, but I actually grew up a Packer fan when it comes to the NFL. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Which is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a point of contention for a lot of people here. Um, so my mom's side of the family is from Wisconsin. My dad's side of the family is also from Wisconsin, but he grew up in Minnesota. So he's always been a Viking fan. My mom has always been a Packer fan. And so when I was like five years old, they would be, you know, watching TVs on, in different areas of the house, watching different games. And uh, my dad was a, you know, very passionate Viking fan and would be screaming at Dante Culpepper on TV and, uh, <laughs> Just, you know, my mom's experience always seemed a lot calmer and a lot more fun. So when I was like five years old, I decided that I was going to ride the Packer train and uh, have not looked back since, to be honest with you. so Obviously, the NFL is the sport in the United States. Describe for those folks that might not understand, but describe just how big the rivalry is between the Vikings, the team that represented the state you grew up in, in the Packers that obviously represent the state of Wisconsin. Oh, it's it's huge. It's like last year, if you know you were in a Mercedes household and all of a sudden decided you were rooting for Red Bull and Max Verstappen, like it is, uh, <laughs> it is contentious. It is heated. Um, it's funny because they're both Midwestern, so like no one's going to go out and like key your car or something if you're a Packer fan. But um, you'll get a lot of uh, a lot of passive aggression. Um, yeah, just just a lot of shade, I guess. So talk then a little bit about how you how you decided or maybe when you decided that the sports industry or sports media was something that you wanted to get into. Was it something that occurred to you at a younger age? Was it something that you started developing a taste for in high school? Yeah, I, I've always loved sports since I was young, for whatever reason. I, I was born in September. And so my dad likes to say that, you know, I would take my naps watching football when I was a baby because, um, <laughs> you know, the first however many months of the season. Um, so I don't know really where all of that came from, but I always loved it. You know, I, I would go to lots of games when I was young. One of my first, you know, major Christmas presents that I remember asking for was for a subscription to Sports Illustrated. So I've, I've always loved reading about sports. I've always loved sports. And so I always knew that I wanted to do something in that realm. I don't think I really connected it with media probably until I was in high school and realized that, you know, I enjoyed writing and I loved reading and so kind of connecting the two things was really exciting for me. I wrote for the school newspaper in high school, really enjoyed that. And, you know, just kind of my heroes were like the people who wrote long form sports journalism. And so I had always kind of thought that that would be a cool thing to do. And so when I was looking at colleges, I decided to look at good journalism schools and ended up going to the University of Missouri, which is 
you know, we like to say the best. I, I think people across the country would probably say somewhere in the top three pretty consistently. Um, you know, the whole Mizzou mafia thing out there. But uh, yeah, it, it started when I was really young. Why the University of Missouri? Was it basically just predicated on the quality of the program? And what are some of your best memories of going to that school and some of the things that you remember learning that's really stuck with you and resonated with you throughout your career? Yeah, um, I kind of... I, I ended up touring Mizzou almost on a whim, actually. Like I had done a program in high school at Northwestern. So I kind of knew um, what their program looked like a bit. Um, they're, you know, another kind of top three journalism program in the country. And, you know, being from the Midwest, it's, it's you know, the thought of going to school in Chicago was very appealing. Um, but I had an aunt and uncle who went and like went to a concert at Mizzou and were like, did you know that they have a great journalism program? And so, uh, one summer we just took a road trip and decided to take a tour and, uh, just fell in love. The campus is a botanical garden, which is wild, beautiful. Um, and, and their program was just really cool. It's, it's all, it's less theory based and more experience based. So, you know, for me, I was in the, you know, written program, like the print journalism program, which is funny now that like, you know, <laughs> print journalism isn't, isn't a quite an interesting state, but we don't have to get into that. Um, so I was in that program. And so I wrote for the city paper twice, like two different semesters across my career. Um, and you know, if you focus on print, that's what you did. If you focus on television, you work for like a real live TV news station, radio, same thing. So they're really focused on getting you kind of that hands-on experience, uh, which I really liked. And as far as going to school there, it's amazing. Columbia is a really fun college town, um, you know, helped me develop or further, I guess, my love for college football. Um, there were a couple of good years there. They actually made the Big 12 to SEC transition while I was in school there. And so I got to go to a couple of uh, SEC championship games that we were playing in and that we got uh, blown out in. So that was a, a fun kind of awakening to see just how we really stacked up in the conference but it was it was a really great time to be there Megan do you recall your first paid gig and did it live up to the expectations that maybe you had when you were in high school and of course in university yeah I think my first paid gig was an internship with the Timberwolves and Lynx which I did this summer between my junior and senior years yeah it was great um they were going through kind of an interesting time. Well, both teams, both of those teams are always going through interesting times. The Timberwolves very rarely trending in the right direction. The Lynx um, at that point were kind of in the middle of their dynasty, which was really fun. Um, so yeah, I got to work for the team, which was interesting. I, I had never worked kind of on that side of things before. Um, very eye-opening as to, you know, kind of like the limitations when you're working for a team, you know, you have to be generally positive and upbeat about what they're going through, even, you know, in the Timberwolves case at that time when things were looking pretty rough. Um, but it, it was really great deadline writing experience. You know, you had to go to games, you had to interview um, people after and, you know, write quickly. And it was really good practice at always being able to find an angle and always being able to find a story, you know, like you'd write off of, you know, most practices, you'd write off of the draft, you'd write off of, you know, in the doldrums of, of summer when there's no NBA news, you'd have to find, you know, historical stuff to write about or rankings or, you know, just always having to find your way into um, creating something interesting. So that was a uh, really, really great experience for me. I had a blast doing it. I'm going to flip the next two questions because I think it's useful because we have a pretty big international audience. And obviously, the ringers made huge inroads in the sports psyche and the pop culture psyche in North America. But how would you describe to somebody that maybe isn't familiar with it, but how you, would you describe the ringer to somebody unfamiliar with that platform, with that network? Yeah, I, I would say first and foremost, you know, we're a sports and pop culture entity. Um, and I say entity because not only do we have the website, we have a pretty massive podcast network. We have inroads in, you know, documentary films and online video and social media and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but I think our goal is to always, you know, take the topic of the moment or, you know, what's what's happening in sports or culture and and try to give readers, you know, a podcast or an article where they come away feeling like they learned something or, you know, were entertained by something. Um, 
so, you know, we're, we're never going to be kind of like the straight aggregators or um, something like that, but we love a mix of, of long form. We love, you know, a quick blog that kind of explains to you what's happening and, you know, whatever movie drama is going on, or if there's, you know, something crazy going on in NFL free agency, like why this is happening, what you need to know about it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think just, you know, we're, we're a pretty approachable website, I like to think. Um, but yeah, just, just trying to make sure that people always come away learning something. At The Ringer, you've written about everything from the Mighty Ducks to the definitive ranking of dinosaurs. You've done some fantastic work on the NHL, the Winnipeg Jets, and you've done tons and tons of really great long-form written work on, on golf. Looking at The Ringer holistically, is the fact that they have specialized in traditional, original, well-researched, long-form written work, something that appealed to you when you were looking at The Ringer as a long-term destination or place of employment? Yeah. So I'll say my journey with The Ringer kind of started before The Ringer. Um, My first job out of college, I got an internship with Grantland, which uh, was an old property that used to be owned by ESPN and it was all long form, like straight long form and podcasts. Um, and that's something that a lot of my current ringer colleagues helped either found or worked for, for a very, very long time. So, uh, that was how I met, um, you know, like Mallory, Chris Ryan, um, Sean Fennessy, like all many of the people that you might be familiar with in the Ringer universe. Um, and so I worked for them for a few months and then, uh, they started to branch off to form the ringer. And I started with the ringer and I think it was April of 2016. So a few months before we launched in June, um, there I was what you would call a researcher, which is, you know, kind of a glorified fact checker, (laughs) but learned a lot from that. Um, you know, just about kind of the editorial process that they were trying to build the, the rigor with which they, you know, edit and check and vet stories. Um, And yeah, just got a lot of really great experience working with editors, working with writers, working with people kind of all across the the company, which was great. And then, yeah, then I started editing, realized that I loved working with writers. I I do enjoy writing myself and it's something that I probably don't do enough of, but um, I, I love having my hands in kind of like a lot of different pies all at the same time. So getting to work with writers across football, baseball, culture, hockey, golf, whatever it may be, um, is super fun for me. And that's kind of what I get to do now. One of the things that really appeals to me about The Ringer is the sheer amount of original high quality content that is produced. And if you look around the sports media galaxy today, so many different companies just focus on aggregating quotes and aggregating content that is generated by somebody else and it's all compressed into these bite-sized social media morsels and the ringer continues to push back on that trend by promoting long-form quality written articles research and of course the entire podcast universe which you describe is is fantastic when you when you started with the ringer what was your ambition? What was your ambition that you would be a part of that that podcast universe? Was it that you wanted to have the opportunity to write some of this long form? Because today you seem to have your you seem to have your toes in pretty much all of the different vehicles or channels that the Ringer Podcast works in. To be honest, when I was starting, I think I was kind of trying to figure out where I fit into all of that. Um, I definitely always wanted to have a role on the written side. I, I think good writing is something that is maybe a little undervalued today, um, you know, with, you know, just having fewer long form opportunities, fewer, you know, sports magazines. Um, I, I still love good writing and I still love to be involved in good writing. So that was something that I always knew that I wanted to do. Um, and I wasn't sure whether that was, you know, me wanting to be a writer or, um, you know, editing was something I'd never really considered until after I got out of college. So, getting more experience on that side, I realized that I liked more of the kind of creative brainstorming side and and getting to actually read good copy and getting to help writers, you know, have the best copy out there. Um, But yeah, the podcast side was always super intriguing for me too. I got to um, 
experienced that a little bit um, with some appearances on Fairway Rolling a while back, our our wonderful golf podcast, which was really, really fun for me and, and good experience. And then, um, yeah, when we started to dive more deeply into Formula One last year and kind of especially over this winter when we launched the podcast, uh, it was really good experience for me to get to help kind of, you know, produce that show and, and kind of help um, get to shape what we wanted it to be. You mentioned earlier, uh, obviously, you did that fantastic internship and you were able to get your kind of get some experience and get some reps covering the links and covering the Timberwolves in Minnesota. You talk a little bit about the fact that you were exposed and immersed in college football, of course, when you were at the University of Missouri. Uh, you talk, of course, about your fandom and your passion for the Packers. But when you look at a lot of the work that you've done with the Ringer, you've done a lot of really fantastic coverage of golf. How did how did that begin? Was that a sport that you were passionate about growing up? Or was that just an opportunity that you discovered to get to get immersed in the sports industry? Yeah, a little bit of both. I I grew up loving watching golf. I grew up, you know, in the Tiger era. So right, it was right. just downright unavoidable, to be honest. But, you know, Minnesota is actually like a very big golf community, which is funny considering that we have snow on the ground half the year. <laughs> but I think per capita, we're like one of the, the states with the, the most golfers in the country, which is interesting. So I grew up um, playing it quite poorly, still play it quite poorly. Uh, but I loved watching it always. And, you know, when we were starting the ringer, um, it, it seemed like a good, a good chance to get some, some writing reps and, um, yeah, and, and get on the board a little bit. And I've, I've really fallen in love with it. Golf is a, it's an interesting sport to write about because it's also individual, which I think is why I like it. There's, you know, a lot of psychoanalyzing you can do and a lot of, um, you know, individual charting that I think is, can be difficult to do in other sports when there are so many outside variables. And with golf, it's really you against the course. It's not even really you against your competitors. It's all so mental and so, um, like drive based. And, and I find that that's super fascinating to write about and, and to watch and, you, you get like a really good glimpse of that just when you're watching people out on the course. And, and if you follow them for a while, you can kind of start to chart tendencies and um, and how they handle certain like pressure packed situations. And, and I find that so interesting. Megan, recently you collaborated on a definitive list of dinosaurs that was published on the ringer.com, which really <laughs> reinforces the pop culture side of that mm -hmm. network. And I think it's what I find really exciting about the site is I love sports and I want to read about sports, but I'm also a big fan of pop culture, movies, TV, all that kind of stuff. And ringer gives you kind of this 360 degree view of all of these different topics. But you did an article recently, the definitive ranking of dinosaurs. And of course, I'm a mm -hmm. Raptors fan, but one of the the things that I surfaced <laughs> in this list was you have slotted at number nine, the Sinclairs, and you have a photo of, or a link to a video of baby Sinclair. And I have very fond memories of this show. And when I saw this, I'm like, I was excited. Like, I haven't even thought about this show in a decade. I can't wait to show my four-year-old. But you kind of alluded in this article to the fact that maybe it wouldn't be so appealing to a young child in the early <laughs> 2020s. So I went back and watched it. And there was some nostalgia there, mm -hmm. but very quickly, I'd like, I am not showing this to my four-year-old. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. My, my colleague, Miles Surrey and I, um, many, many years ago figured out that we both had a passion for, uh, shark movies, right. which is right. a really like kind of niche, <laughs> niche genre, I guess you could say. And I, I think it was around the time, maybe it was around when the Meg was coming out or a different shark movie. And we decided to collaborate on a couple of articles, one of them being, I think it was a definitive ranking of either sharks in movies or shark movies. I forget exactly which one it was. And ever since then, we've just kind of tried to find other, right. you know, sort of timely aspects to do this. So we've done like a ranking of, you know, pop culture tigers. We've done dinosaurs. We've done, I think we've done pop culture babies, which was more like a little more frightening <laughs> than I think it was cute, especially with the New Orleans uh, Pelicans mascot, right. like the king cake baby in there. That was pretty terrifying. But I, I do remember the dinosaur one because I had to go back and watch some Sinclair's footage on YouTube and um, baby Sinclair was almost <laughs> as nightmare inducing to me as uh, the king cake baby was. So I think that's why they got knocked a little bit because it was, 
yeah, not not quite as much fun to revisit. I guess I feel like I'm far more sensitive now than I was in the in the early '90s because I had very fond memories, which quickly evaporated when I went back to rewatch some of the footage on YouTube. Yeah. Let's take let's take a quick break because when we get back, I want to jump into the moment or the time in your life where Formula One began to weave its weave inroads into your psyche. So for everyone listening at home, thanks for joining us. We're going to be back in a couple of seconds. We're just going to pay some of those proverbial bills. See you on the flip side. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Once again, I am being joined by the myth, the legend, Megan Schuster. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about how Megan got her start in sports media, her time at The Ringer, some of the sports that she's really passionate about, and of course, her interest in long-form articles, podcasting, etc. At this point in the podcast, this is where we typically shift a little bit to stay on theme or say on brand to talk a little bit about Formula One. And I'm really curious to know, you, you grew up in Minnesota, you went to the University of Missouri, you were a big football fan. Fan, you write about golf, you obviously know hockey, and you do some really great pop culture work. Where and how did Formula One begin to intersect with your life? And do you remember your first experience with the sport? Yeah, so I uh, am proudly of the drive to survive generation fully. I am not ashamed to admit it. <laughs> um, during COVID, you know, you're going through Netflix and you're trying to figure out what what should I watch these days? You know, I, I'm not going outside. I'm not right. seeing people. I, you know, need some some entertainment. And I was talking with some of my colleagues and one in particular, Michael Bauman, who you may have heard on the Ringer F1 show. Um Rec- had been recommending this, you know, drive to survive to me for, for quite a while. And finally, I was like, you know what, I'm bored enough now, I'm, I'm willing to give in, I'm willing to give this a try. And, um, you know, very quickly within the first couple of episodes, I was like, Oh, not only is this, you know, interesting, fastest cars in the world. It's also an incredibly dramatic sport, like, <laughs> more than more than any maybe US-based sports league. I, I mean, the NBA has a lot of drama, but right. I feel like Formula One is is pretty willing to kind of put it all out there and, right. and let you know who is being dramatic with who, what the, you know, tension points are. Like, you know, take this summer, for example, like in the Oscar Piastri drama and, you know, the quotes that people have been giving about all of that and about Fernando Alonso. And they're just very willing to be pretty candid. Um in interviews, which is uh, fascinating to me. So fell in love with it because of that. I also just felt like it was very, um, like the barrier to entry is, is not all that high. Um, you know, I tell people all the time, there's 20, maybe 30 names that you really need to know in the sport. And outside of that is, um, you know, once you get into it, you start to figure out, um, you know, tire strategy and, you know, where kind of the mechanics come into play, but, but just, to enjoy the sport, you don't need to know all of that much. And so, uh, I started, 
you know, getting into drive to survive in between kind of seasons two and three, watch season three. And then 2021 was my first season watching every race. Like I, you know, made my Sundays kind of appointment viewing to, to make sure that I knew what was going on with it. And, um, you know, obviously that was such a compelling season that we don't get seasons like that all the time, but that one especially was so dramatic and there was so much going on between Lewis and Max and, you know, even teams down the field with, you know, Daniel Ricardo winning a race, which was, you know, as a drive to survive fan, so thrilling for me. Um, but yeah, it, it, I fell in love with it very, very quickly. You make a really great point, and it's not something that I've thought about in a while, but that concept or that term, barrier to entry, right? And if you look Mm -hmm. at the NFL, somebody that's new to the sport, you got to come to grips with the fact that there's 32 teams, there's rosters of 50-plus people. You need to understand how college football works, how the draft works, all the different positions. Like That's (laughs) a big barrier to entry, and I think for a lot of people that grew up with the NFL, well, they might take that for granted because they've been immersed in the sport their entire life. But when it comes to Formula One, you're right. There's 10 teams, 20 drivers, Mm -hmm. and you should probably know the team principles. And anything beyond that is basically gravy. But that's really all you need to be familiar with to get a start and to be able to start enjoying the the sport. And the other consideration, too, is obviously the calendar's expanded now in ways that we probably could never have predicted. We're over 20 races. But again, really, when you look at it, it's one race every two weeks over the course of a calendar year. And the expectation is it's a 90 minute race, maybe an hour 40. It's not a huge requirement to become a fan of the sport. It's not like the NBA where you're sitting down three times a week or major league baseball where you're watching six games a week. It's not a huge commitment to become a part of this community. Was formula one, your first foray into, into motorsports? It was motorsport is not a, a super huge, part of you know life and and the culture of you know where I'm from and so it wasn't something that I or at least not in my family so I didn't grow up watching it you know honestly growing up I I pretty much thought that NASCAR was the only form of racing out there just because you know I I wasn't exposed to much beyond that and so um, you know growing like as I got older I realized you know IndyCar was a thing I had a, a really good friend who moved to Indianapolis not long after college and you know, she got really into, you know, IndyCar and um, especially like the, you know, big race in Indianapolis. So that was kind of cool. But as as far as international racing, I, I'd heard of Formula One, but I don't think I realized just how elevated it is. I think I, you know, you hear the NASCAR jokes of, you know, they only turn left or whatever it is. And I, I think I just assumed that every form of racing was like that. And so coming into Formula One and realizing you know, not only all the money behind it, but all the different locations that they go to all of the, you know, all all of the different layers that go into every race and every car and every driver team pairing. I found it really, really fascinating. I've really watched with great intrigue how young viewers consume major professional sports in North America. And when I was young, you supported a team. If you grew up in Southern Ontario, you were a Toronto Blue Jays fan. And if you grew up in Southern California, you were probably a Lakers fan. Definitely not a Clippers fan, but probably a Lakers fan. And if you grew up in Minnesota, you were with the exception of you, apparently. <laughs> but you would have been a Vikings fan, and a North Star fan, etc., Today, it seems very different that people follow individual stars, and this is especially prevalent in the in the NBA, but from a Formula One perspective, there isn't really a set template. So I, I'm curious to ask, as a new fan to the sport and somebody that's been consuming it the last couple of years, are you supporting individual drivers or individual teams or a bit of both? Yeah, I, I would say I definitely lean driver over team. And I also, and maybe this is just my media brain being super broken, I find myself <laughs> really rooting for narratives too. So like like last season, I, I, I would say, you know, if, if you give me Max and Lewis together, like I, I'm much more interested in Lewis, I I would say I root for Lewis more. But last season with Max being sort of the up and comer, I found myself kind of rooting for that narrative and for that, um, you know, the challenger to come up. And, you know, obviously, I was hoping that Mercedes would have a better car this year, and they would be kind of head to head again, and maybe Lewis gets it back. But um, yeah, I I found myself really compelled by that narrative. I um, am just always interested in Haas 
<laughs> for whatever reason. I think that may be the only team that I am just like, I, I will take any and all news about Haas. I find that so funny, um, especially now that Kevin Magnuson is in. I, I like him a lot. But yeah, I, I would say I definitely am a uh, driver over team. I love Sebastian Vettel. We'll be very sad when he's gone next year. Fernando Alonso, I find super fun. Yeah, I've hitched my wagon way more to to drivers. I like that point as well about narratives. And obviously, I, I don't consume, other than a couple of, of F1 podcasts, I don't tend to consume a ton of F1 content because mm-hmm. I don't like I don't like what we do to be influenced or colored by other people's work. But I do consume a ton of NBA content. And sure. for instance, the narratives this summer were Kevin Durant demands a trade, everything associated with the Brooklyn Nets, what's going to happen with the LA Lakers. And those are the narratives that drove mm-hmm. the conversation and kind of steered and fueled the content throughout the summer. And last year, we had the ultimate narrative, which was a championship that went down to the last lap of the last race of the longest season in the history of the sport. So that kind of fueled it. This year, we we know that the championships are pretty much tidied up. So it's more now a matter of finding new mm-hmm. narratives to drive the story and drive content and fuel interest. And you touched on something that I absolutely love about the sport, and it's the driver market. It's silly season. And I'd heard in the past, and I've never seen the analytics, but I understand that. And it's even just from my personal fandom, but I love the NBA. I get super interested when the playoffs began. It doesn't even peak at the finals because immediately after the finals, right. you go into the draft and you go into free agency. And my peak NBA fandom is usually at the point of free agency, Mm -hmm. which is funny because the season's over. In Formula One, what we've discovered is, and I kind of shared a little bit of this with you before the show, our ratings are never bigger than when A, Ferrari is successful, B, (laughs) Ferrari is not successful, or C, anything to do with driver news. Like one of the biggest podcasts we've done in the last year was the episode at the beginning of August when we were talking about Oscar Piastri and Fernando Alonso. Those stories just absolutely move the needle. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. All of that rambling aside, I'm super curious to hear your perspective or your experience trying to wrap your head around the way that the F1 driver market works. The fact that you can sign a contract while under contract to another team, especially when we're so used to tampering rules and collective bargaining agreements. I think I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, honestly. This... uh... This Oscar Piastri saga has really, really tested the limits of my my newfound knowledge. <laughs> um, just the fact that they had to go to like an FIA court to sort out who actually had rights to him and where his contract, um, how it all netted out was, was fascinating to me. I was like, I, I can't even imagine there being that big of a contract dispute in the NBA that they would have to go to court to sort something like this out. Like I, I feel like their systems are so well established at this point and, and the overarching structure of the leagues is such that like, it, it would be really difficult for something like that to happen. And yet in formula one, I feel like it's, you know, well, I guess it's happening in IndyCar right now too, with McLaren, who is deciding to just be chaos agents right. across the board, which, <laughs> which I respect. I totally respect it. Yeah, it, well, that in and of itself was wild to me. Um, you know, Fernando Alonso announcing he was going to Aston Martin, apparently without telling Alpine, and then deciding to just go off on his, his summer break vacations in Spain and not answer any phone calls was exceptional too. And and yeah, and, and then you have Daniel Ricardo who is like maybe going to be without a seat next year. There was that video of him last weekend saying like, you know, maybe out of, I'm sure out of context, but talking about, you know, maybe taking next year off and trying to come back in 2024. It's just, it's, there's really not another sport where, you know, you can love a driver and they might just not be around the next season. And and that is so wild to me. Like in basketball, you're always going to find a contract. You might have to take less money, but you know, if you're a fan favorite and still able to contribute, there, there's going to be a spot for you somewhere in formula one with there just being the 20 seats, it's, um, 
that there's just not enough to go around. And, and that is really, really wild to me. That's such a good point. And, and it's so different, like you said, than the NFL or the NBA, where there are 50 roster spots or 15 roster spots and hundreds across the league that, that players that have talent are going to get multiple opportunities. And in Formula One, there's 10 teams and there's 20 seats and the power unit manufacturers have an undue amount of influence ultimately over who gets those seats. So you see some peculiarities happen where maybe some drivers that probably shouldn't be an F1 get to keep their seat and some exceptional talent on the outside are stuck looking into Formula One, possibly forever without ever getting that opportunity. And the other thing I wanted to mention real quick, and we talk about this all the time on our show, is the peculiarities of how Formula One driver contracts work, that there is no collective bargaining agreement that governs this. A driver can sign a contract while under contract for another team, meaning, hey, I'm under contract for all of 2022. It's March of 2021. I'm going to sign a contract for 2023 with a different team. Like, imagine that <laughs> happening in the NBA or, or Major League Baseball. It just, it breaks my brain even trying to think about this. Now, another question for you, and I want to kind of pivot back to the business side of Formula One, but obviously the sport is experiencing exponential growth in the US, and it seems like the traction this time, no one pundit, is sustainable. But when did it occur to you that maybe this was real and not just a pandemic-induced flash in, in the pan? Yeah, I, I think I first noticed it during the 2021 season, and it, it certainly could have been happening before. That was just when I first, you know, week to week started paying attention, started following the news really closely, watching every race. And I would notice, you know, I, I would be waking up at, you know, 8 a.m. Central Time or 7.30 a.m. Central Time on a Sunday to watch a race and noticing that, you know, there are tons of other pe people, US-based media people that I followed who are also up and kind of tweeting about the race and and getting excited about the drama. And, you know, that was really new to me. And, you know, realizing from that, that, okay, that like there's an audience base and not just media people, but, you know, I had other friends from college in my life who would, who would text me on Sunday mornings, like I'm up and watching and, um, you know, friends here who would start asking me, why, why do you like it so much? Like, I, I think I'm going to start drive to survive. I'm really curious about it. Um, and just kind of realizing that, you know, it's, it's like we were talking about earlier, it, it's an easy sport to get into. It's it, the races move really quickly. There's not that many names you need to know. Eventually you'll start getting into the inner workings of, you know, like you said, power units, tire changes, um, and, you know, more intensive strategy, but just to enjoy a race, you know, you don't have to know all of that much. So, um, I think it was during the 2021 season. And then, you know, toward the end of the year, as the drama was really reaching a point, it felt like one of the most interesting things in sports and not just, you know, for European outlets, um, but, you know, for U.S. outlets, like I saw, you know, Sports Illustrated wrote some stuff about it. ESPN was kind of upping their coverage. We were writing about it, um, you know, for really like the first time ever consistently. Um, and I think just naturally, like how it ended last year, you know, over that winter break, uh, just drew a lot of people in. They wanted to know what all the drama was about. And, you know, anything that comes down to like the last second of the last race is is just naturally going to attract people, I think. And, and now this year it feels even more sustained, e even though, you know, this season is probably going to be, end up being a little less compelling than last year. Earlier this year, the Ringer Podcast Network introduced the Ringer F1 show headed by Kevin Clark. How long was this in the works? And was it something that folks really had to lobby Bill Simmons and, and maybe Spotify to introduce? And when it did become clear it was happening, how did you express your desire to be a part of it? Because obviously you've had a big presence on the program. Yeah, I, I think uh, Kevin could probably speak to this maybe a little bit better than I could. He and uh, Ryan Russillo, who hosts the Ryan Russillo show on our network, um, they had, you know, some segments throughout 2021, um, kind of talking about F1 on that show. And I think, you know, Kevin's had interest in it, uh, a few years longer than I have. And so I think there were some conversations on that end. I had some conversations over the winter with, um, my direct boss, you know, primarily about how we're, how we were going to cover it on the written side, but also, you know, expanding it into podcasting and, 
um, you know, using all of the talents at our disposal to kind of up our coverage of it. And so I think this spring, it kind of all came to a head, you know, January, February, where we're realizing, you know, with the craziness of last season, there are a lot of new fans and, and that we thought that there was definitely like a, a U.S. based market out there that we could serve really well. And, um, you know, kind of use, you know, the sort of voice that we podcast with and write with and, and get into all of the drama and craziness of, of this sport. And so, uh, yeah, Kevin launched the show in, I want to say February talking about the new season of drive to survive. And then we've just, uh, you know, kind of been growing it from there. One of the things that I think has been an excellent strategic decision for, for the leadership at the ringer is that as you've been developing the ringer F1 show podcast, you've done a really great job of bringing personalities on from around the world of formula one. And, you know, I I'm always excited to hear spanners on the show and you've brought tech enthusiasts and tech expert Bryson Sullivan on the show. And I thought that's a really good way to bring subject matter experts onto the show and immerse ringer listeners who maybe, maybe are familiar with the sport, but maybe themselves are new to the sport and they're looking for an entry port to support their enthusiasm with voices and personalities that they're familiar with. But I thought that the way that you've done that strategically has been has been brilliant. What do you think F1 needs to do to sustain this momentum? So it's put itself financially, economically, socially in a really good place in the US. But what do you think F1, Liberty, the FIE need to do to make sure that they don't spoil this? Because Formula One's been in a good place before and has found ways to wreck it. What does it need to do to stay where it is this time? Yeah, well, I, I think they're already you know, making decent strides in that, in that area, you know, adding the the Miami race, adding a Las Vegas race, having three races here starting next year is going to be really huge. Um, and, and, you know, Las Vegas and Miami are kind of their own separate entities, but I, I think just showcasing formula one on grander scales here is, is going to be really interesting. I will be really curious if there ends up being an American driver on the grid at some point soon, what that does for, viewership, what that does for fandom. I, th- I think that's the one thing that is is both good and bad about US fandom is there's not really like a natural person that you, you know, should be rooting for. Like Haas is technically an American team, but you know, most of their stuff is not based here. None of none of the people, the forward facing people on the team are are American or would, you know, consider themselves overly like US centric. So um that would be really interesting. I'll also be curious you know, with any kind of expansion deals. Like I know the Andretti's are still very, very interested in buying into F1 and kind of creating a team there, which would be fascinating. And Formula One has seemed a little resistant to that so far. But I think there's a lot on the horizon that I'm sure F1 is hoping will keep up the US momentum. And then from there, we'll see. I think, you know, the more people start following it more closely, maybe the less impactful drive to survive is just since you're already sort of familiar with the narrative but you know I'm sure more and more people will continue to find that show and once they do there's you know a lot of U.S. coverage now and a lot of U.S. races and just more for them to latch on to. I like that you brought up the concept or the idea of an American driver because that was my next question here is as we speak, Red Bull, Helmut Marco, Christian Horner, they're lobbying the FIA to make an exception to allow them to bring Colton Herta into Formula One to replace Pierre Gasly, who presumably is going to go to Alpine. F1's already in a really great place, despite the fact that, like you said, there isn't really an American team, and maybe on paper there is, but I would say that uh, in terms of social etiquette, there certainly isn't, and there isn't an American driver. But what do you think would be the impact of having not just an American driver in the sport, but somebody that could be competitive and compete for podiums? I think it would be huge. I think just, you know, everyone wants to feel like they're kind of represented, I guess. And, you know, to have a US based driver would be fascinating, especially on a team like AlphaTauri that is so closely linked to Red Bull. Um, I, you know, Red Bull is, for all their faults is a great marketing team that they're very, very good at, you know, driving interest and driving drama, especially with Christian Horner and Helmut Marco. So and anytime that you're, you know, putting an American driver with with those two, they, they know how to promote them. They know how to, you know, try and drive interest in this team. And, and I think it would be really fascinating to see how 
you know, an IndyCar driver like Colton Herta would, would face on the grid, what, what that learning curve looks like, what that, um, you know, maybe the experience difference looks like. I think it would be just, just another layer of intrigue, I guess, for us audiences. I've been a critic of Haas in the past because my perception or my perspective has been that this is an American team that has done nothing for Formula One in the United States and has done nothing to develop young American drivers. And they've been in the sport since 2016. They've had the opportunity to do so. But at the same time, I look at the way that they've supported their drivers and the infrastructure they built. I don't think they would ever have been able to nurture an American driver in the way that they would have deserved. And I look at Red Bull. And while I'm certainly a critic of some of the things that Helmet Marco says and does. And I've been a critic of Christian Horner at times. I also trust, I, I emphatically trust the infrastructure that they have to develop young drivers. And I think that would be a wonderful place for Colton Herta to get his Formula One start. Let's take one more quick break. When we come back, we'll wrap this up. But before we do, I want to get some of your predictions on not only Formula One, but I want to get some, your, some of your predictions on golf, on the NFL, on college football. And then we'll wrap this up with a couple of rapid fire questions. So everyone that's at home, we'll be back in two minutes. We're just going to take a quick break. See you on the flip side. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Joining me once again, the myth, the legend, Megan Schuster of the Ringer Spotify Podcast Network. We've been talking about her career, her journey in sports media, how she got her big break, how she got her start, her work and her time at at, uh, at uh, the Ringer. And of course, we've been talking about her passion and her newfound interest in Formula One. Megan, we're now currently halfway through the 2022 championship. It looks like it looks like the titles might be decided at this point. It would take a miracle for them to become a little bit more competitive over the last five or six races. But to you, what has been the biggest surprise of 2022 so far? And what has been your biggest, your personal biggest disappointment coming into this season? I think the biggest surprise for me is just how severely Ferrari has kind of fumbled the bag here they came in you know through all of preseason testing it looked like their car was just going to steamroll over everyone they have two exceptional drivers and two young drivers it seemed like this was going to set them up for you know years potentially of, of dominance and um i i think not only has it surprised me that they have been fumbling this but the different ways that they've been fumbling this have been really just wild every race is a is a new issue and a new um problem and i i have been shocked by that i think the thing that i've been most disappointed by is probably um you know the mercedes teams not only the big team but um you know mclaren williams um I, I was really hoping that we would get kind of the Max versus Lewis redux this season and, and get to have another competitive bout between those two. I'm cautiously optimistic that Mercedes is figuring it out and by next season that may happen, but I think that's what I was most disappointed in. I was going to ask you what your predictions were for the rest of the season, but I think I'm going to pivot on that and instead ask, because we were talking about narratives a little while ago, from your perspective, kind of thinking with your your media hat on at this point, what are the narratives that people should be interested in and should follow for the rest of the season now that the championships are more or less decided? Definitely the remainder of silly season. Um, love that it's extended beyond the summer break this year. That's been super fun. Um, yeah, yeah. The, you know, Daniel Ricardo question, the Mick Schumacher question, the you know, uh, Colton heard a question of Pierre Gasly moves. Um, there's still so, so many dominoes up in the air and they could all fall in various directions. And I think that is going to continue to be really intriguing. Um, I am still curious what, if any changes Ferrari decides to make, um, you know, if this sort of downward spiral continues across the rest of the season, there's, I mean, at, at this point, I don't think there are any excuses. And if, it continues to trend this direction. There's definitely no excuse for, you know, kind of keeping the same structure together going into next year. So um, all of that drama will be especially fun to watch. Um, you know, how Fernando Alonso continues the rest of the season at Alpine is fun for me personally, because I think he's just the king of drama. Um, and then, yeah, I guess, you know, how early Max wins, but I don't think that that's 
you know, that seems like a foregone conclusion at this point. So it's just kind of a matter of when. As we speak, we are on the very cusp of the NFL, the college football seasons. Obviously, as a native Minnesotan who has Packer and Viking I would say genetics in your <laughs> DNA. You're probably very interested in the fact that those seasons are about mm-hmm. to start, but any any brave predictions for the college football season, for the NFL season? For the NFL season, I don't think this is especially brave, but I think this may be the year that the Bills finally do it, which is fun not only for me, but for you know the legions of Bills fans out there who are crazy and, and overly enthusiastic. Um, I just, it feels like, you know, the AFC is going to be especially tough this year, but they're not in a particularly tough division. And so I feel like they'll have kind of an opportunity to earn that one seed and get some um, strategic placing for the playoffs and hopefully have enough firepower this year to actually get it done, which would be really, really fun. I I would love to see Bill's fans at a Super Bowl again. That would be incredible. Um, As far as college football, I have not been following it as closely as I have in, you know, during my college days, but I feel like a safe prediction is probably that Alabama is going to be in there somewhere. Um, They're a pretty inevitable force as long as Nick Saban is around. And um, I I would like to see good things happen for Bryce Young. He's uh, super fun to watch. So those would be my my choices. I want to throw the rapid fire questions that we always save for for drivers just because it gives us a gives us a little bit of insight in their personality, but I I'm also very curious because you write about sports and pop culture. So I'm going to throw some of these rapid fire questions at you. The first one is this. When you play or if you've ever played Mario Kart, which is your favorite character? And I have a suspicion I know who it is, but I want to hear it from you. Your favorite Mario Kart character. It's definitely Bowser. <laughs> And Bowser. I like to put him on one of the little scooters, so he looks especially ridiculous. It's uh, <laughs> a weird passion of mine, but yes, I like to play as Bowser. I love it. The last TV show you binged? Ooh, I I rewatched uh, Fleabag recently on on Amazon Prime. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, th- I mean that's a, a rewatch, so I don't know if it counts as a binge, but um, yeah, great, great show. Last movie you watched? Ooh, I think it was Nope, the Jordan Peele kind of psychological thriller movie. I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. When you work out, when you're out for a walk, for a run, you're trying to get your vibe before you sit down to write a really great 5,000 word long form article. <laughs> Which album are you listening to to get you in the mood? Oh my gosh. Um... I would say probably my favorite album of all time, which is Led Zeppelin's Four, would probably be my answer. All right. Two more quick questions here, and I'm going to let you go. I know you've got a crazy busy day, and I cannot thank you enough for your time. The first one is, what is your 30-second Formula One sales pitch to your friend? So a friend that maybe is interested, kind of kind of caught off guard by your newfound fandom and passion and love for Formula One. What is your 30-second sales pitch to turn somebody on to F1 or encourage them to give it a try? Yeah, I would say uh, fast cars, international superstars, glitz and glamour all over the board. Not a lot of names you need to know. And it's, you know, each race is over and done in 90 minutes. So not a huge time commitment and just super fun and dramatic across the board. One of the questions that Daly and I get all the time, especially from our, our younger listeners, our younger demo is, and we're not qualified to answer this question, which is why I put it to you, but for somebody that's young, high school, college, and they want to get into sports media in 2022, what would your recommendations be? I would say just get whatever experience you can. There are so many you know, internet outlets out there that are willing to, to give people a shot and you know, you can create your own blog, you can kind of carve out your own niche lane. And I would say just, you know, look for an opportunity, whether it's, you know, a certain sport you love kind of across the board and just start writing, start getting experience wherever you can. And I think that would be, you know, the most important thing is is to have some reps under your belt and kind of, and kind of know what you're looking for. My final question to you is this, where can our listeners follow you on social media and where can they check out some of the really great sports journalism work that you've done over the past few years? Yeah, they can find my work at the ringer.com, a great website. Um, they can also listen to me occasionally on the ringer F1 show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can find me on social media. My handle is at Meg Schuster. Yeah, I think that's it. 
Megan, thank you so much once again for your time today. I cannot thank you enough. For everyone listening at home, I urge you to check out The Ringer, check out some of Megan's fantastic work, especially especially if you're into pop culture, especially if you're into golf. If you haven't checked it out already, and I don't recommend a lot of F1 podcasts, but make sure you check out The Ringer F1 show. Megan graces that show with her presence quite often. It's hosted regularly by Kevin Clark, who's actually going to be joining us in a couple of weeks. And Megan, once again, thank you so much for the opportunity to come on the Ringer F1 show a couple of weeks ago. As a big fan of the Ringer podcast network, that was a big check mark in the old life box for Mr. <laughs> Mark Hamilton. For everyone listening at home, thank you so much for tuning in. We always appreciate your support. Make sure you check us on check us out on Twitter. At Scuderia F1 Pod. We will be launching ScuderiaF1Pod.com very soon. We're super excited about that. And if you enjoy our show, you like what you hear, make sure to check us out on Spotify. Give us a rating. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, a rating and a review mean the absolute world to both Mr. Daly and myself. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in. I'll speak to you all soon. Bye for now.